Welcome to Portraits of Honor. We stand in the swiftly fading shadow of our World War II veterans and heroes who united for a single purpose, to honor life, liberty, and justice for all. They were soldiers and sailors, airmen and mechanics, nurses and pilots, radio operators, ordinary people who did extraordinary things. Our mission is to preserve their stories, to bring their experiences to life for a new generation. This is our tribute, our act of honor. Through their words, we explore the essence of honor and remember the sacrifices that were made. For just the cost of a cup of coffee each month, you can help us preserve their stories. Visit portraitsofhonor.com to learn more. Join us as we journey back in time, as we listen, learn, and remember. This is Portraits of Honor. Let the stories of these heroes begin. And now the riveting tale of B-17 bomber pilot William Massey, who survived being blown out of his flaming aircraft sans parachute and evaded the enemy in France for 76 days. This gripping account from a member of the Army 8th Air Force's 401st Bomb Group illuminates an extraordinary story of survival and determination. This interview was recorded on June 27, 2019 in Pell City, Alabama. Okay, so tell me your name again. Uh, Bill Massey, M-A-S-S-E-Y. You served in what unit during World War II? I was with the 8th Air Force, the 401st Bomb Group, 612th Squadron. And when's your birthday? November the 16th. 1920? 1920, yes, okay. I was born. So what did you do during World War II? What was your role and rank? Uh, uh, I was pilot of the bomber B-17, uh, making uh, missions to such places as Berlin, Hamburg, Oxford-Laban, uh, Merseburg, uh, uh, the Kiel Canal we kept out of commission uh, so that uh, the Germans couldn't get any oil from the Near East. And uh, our last assignment was at Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama. I was a staff pilot for the uh, higher rank, uh, taking them to wherever they had to be. And do you remember the name of your B-17? Did it have a, a nickname? You know, kind of like the Memphis Bell or the... Well, the B-17's name, uh, my name of uh, the plane was the Channel Express. We was crossing that channel every day. <laughs> and uh, actually, the plane was passed on to me by a pilot who had finished his uh, tour duty. And uh, I didn't really name the plane. I said, if he's lucky enough to finish, I'm going to leave it like it is. <laughs> 
I found out later on down in the years that passed though, uh, he crashed. Uh, he was in Channel Express number three. He had been shot down uh, once, uh, but got back to the base where he made a fly over the uh, tower and they advised him to turn it, turn the plane toward the Atlantic Ocean, put it on uh, autopilot and bail out. And it was too risky to try to land. It was a shot up. Mm. And he did so, it was very successful. And another time he had to ditch in the North Sea. And uh, they all picked up. So, uh, I took over Channel Express number three. Okay. Can you tell me about any of your missions? Well, I think the roughest one turned out to be at Murrisburg in the uh, deepest part of the rural valley. There were so many much industry located there, such as blast furnaces, ball bearing, manufacturing and uh, there was a ref oil refinery there too and uh, I only made one trip there but the 8th Air Force itself probably made six or seven over the course of the war but we were lucky enough to uh, stifle their industrial production so badly that at times they ran out of ammunition, uh, eventually had no gas. A lot of times the supply lines were broken and the uh, German troops couldn't get food to their troops. It's just General Eisenhower said the Air Force did the impossible and he's right. General Montgomery, the uh, British Army, said the Air Force did more toward winning the war than any other unit of the military. Uh, there were complimentary comments such as that uh, from quite a few more military men, but people do not realize what the 8th Air Force accomplished. It was a miracle. It was truly a miracle. But we paid a high price for it. We had a 25% loss ratio. That means that one out of every four men who took off on a mission, he didn't come back. But I often think about all of the ships, landing craft, the material on D-Day. If the Germans had had an air force, a lot of those men would have been killed. Mm -hmm. So it was very intelligent, well, put together a plan for just what 
they did and accomplished, but the men, the military men directing the uh, war didn't know it would be that successful. Right. Now, I, uh, I, I was an instructor at uh, Hendricks Field in Sebring, Florida for one of uh, about three or four months. And that was in the latter part of the war. And uh, after that class graduated, they closed that as a training field. They knew they had everything in order uh, to do anything they wanted. And they, they did, they did. Going all the way the outskirts of uh, Berlin, but they allowed the uh, Moscow military to actually conquer uh, Berlin. Yeah. So, were you close to your men, your crew members? Oh, very much so. It's like a family. We cooperated. We did the best we could to help one another. We uh, checked and double-checked uh, everything uh, that was supposed to be aboard. Uh, normally we carried 12, a dozen, uh, 500 pounders. Uh, that's three tons of bombs, but one uh, 500-pound Blockbuster <laughs> it can do a, a lot of damage. And uh, I had a friend visit Germany June of last year, and he says Berlin is still rebuilding. Wow. So many years later. Yeah. Um, can you tell me about how many missions did you make? I was on my 19th mission. 25 was a tour. And what happened on the 19th mission? We were near our target. Uh, I'd say probably maybe 15 or 20 minutes away. And uh, we got hit in the uh, pilot's compartment, caught fire, smoke filled the compartment, the pilot's compartment, uh, so full that we couldn't see the instrument panel. Uh, I could tell where it was coming from, but there was not much you can do about it. And uh, of course, nobody got to inspect the plane after it went down to see just what happens. But it is my belief that the hydraulic fluid in the braking system caught fire and uh, caused the smoke that uh, blackened uh, the pilot's compartment. Now, returning crewmen said that it was so black and dense that uh, sometimes it hid the plane from view, but uh, we had the windows open, trying to get some of it out, but it was burning uh, 
I'm smoking so badly it couldn't be done. I think I'm, I'm right in saying that the hydraulic fluid in the braking system uh, caught fire. So tell me about uh, how you got out. Well, of course, I was headed down to the nose of the plane to uh, uh, go out the uh, escape route that the uh, bombardier navigator take. I felt a joke from the blast of the explosion, and all of a sudden I found myself floating in out in the air with no parachute on, but I had it in my hand and managed to get it on uh, before we hit the ground. I would say I pulled a ripcord at about 3,000 feet. And you were at, what altitude were you flying before the? 26,000. Uh, the uh, jolt was so hard when the chute unfolded and blossomed out that it uh, snapped my flying boots off. So I hit the ground on my stocking feet. Wow. I remember speaking to a class one time uh, and told them of that incident, and a little girl in, in the middle of the classroom uh, raised her hand for a question, and here's her question. Did I ever find my boots? And I had to explain to her that uh, I spent no time looking for them. <laughs> That's pretty amazing that you got out. It was. And it survived. It was just uh, all the three of us that survived had the same stories to tell. They put their shoot on uh, while falling also. Now the reason it was so difficult to get it on is that the temperature at that altitude, 26,000, and below, somewhat below that, is so cold, your, your fingers, your arms, they just don't move. Normally, the temperature at that altitude is about 30 degrees below zero. So you had thick clothes on. But we had plenty in. Did you have gloves? And we had a heated suit also. And uh, of course, we had on a May West and we had on a piece of armor uh, over slip down over our head to cover our uh, chest uh, from being hit with shrapnel or bullet. The Germans evidently couldn't stay very long in attacking and uh, after they were there a few minutes in combat, uh, they had to uh, turn around and go home and get, because uh, they were running low of gas. The ME-109 had a very small gas tank. Uh, so when you landed on the ground, where did, what did you do? 
Well, for instructions, they ask us to get our suit up and take it somewhere out of view and hide it as best we could. They suggested that we bury it. You, you don't have time to dig a hole big enough to put a parachute in. I finally covered it with twigs and leaves and branches and things as best I could, but uh, it, was, it was a poor job. Finally, an old gentleman came walking through the pasture there where some cows were grazing, and I tried to stop him to ask him for some help, but he kept walking. He didn't seem to be interested at all. That afternoon, uh, a young man came out in that area, and uh, his movement uh, made me believe he was looking for someone. So I figured I got to take a chance. I got to take a chance. I got to stop him and see if uh, he will help us. And sure enough, he was. Uh, the old gent had told him that uh, one of the crewmen of the plane was out in a certain area uh, and he was looking for us and uh, we made, he didn't speak any English, but we made him realize that uh, I needed help. And uh, he motioned and did hand signals and things enough to make us, uh, make me, the other two hadn't joined me at that time, uh, made me believe that uh, he really was looking for us. And he put us in the house nearby and uh, went off. But about four o'clock that afternoon, he came back with a horse-drawn cart full of hay, put me in it and took me where, I don't know but we turned up at another house and he unloaded us in the barn and it was the home of Madam and Mr. and Mrs. Bow, B-E-A-U. And we spent the night there and she fixed us a little dinner and we slept in the, the barn that night with some of the cattle and all of the rats. But it was uh, very interesting in the type of homes that we stayed in and saw most of the homes in that area probably were built in the 14th to 15th century. Wow. Built out of stone, mud, no indoor plumbing, no water system, they had a well. And uh, in, in these communities, you had no paved roads, there were just dirt roads, there was a little trail because the uh, people there didn't, uh, they weren't able to afford any car. It was a rough type looking community, but uh, they managed to survive. They raised their own food. 
I don't think very many of them went to school, but the type of living that they are going through, it's just unthinkable in our country at having such a crude way of doing things as they had. It, it, it was just unthinkable. Mm -hmm. Have you ever tried to go back there? Oh, I only went back one time in 61 okay. when the uh, French in that area put up a little monument to the crewmen that went down with the plane and we went over for that dedication and uh, they treated us royally and as I say I corresponded with several until about four, three or four years ago and I have learned that all that I corresponded with have passed away. The French gave you um, a medal, is that right? Uh, yes, that was not at that time, but about in, uh, it's about five years ago now, uh, the French gave me their highest military award, which is the Legion of Honor. And uh, recently the uh, uh, town of Jules uh, made me an honorary citizen. And um, the uh, man from the French consulate says all of the children around there, they know about American airmen. Very good. I'll tell you a little story too. I still had my 45 in my flight bag. Well, my dear said, now, Skipper, you're not going to be able to get past customs with that 45. I said, well, I got nothing to lose. If I get by, I'm good. And if I don't get by, I'm no less worse. So uh, as we went through customs and the inspector unzipped my flight bag, Lord have mercy right there on top with my Colt 45. I asked him, and I said, now you're not going to take my Colt 45, are you? I said, that thing's been to war. And uh, he didn't answer me. He just kept on looking. And then all of a sudden, he just snapped the bag too, closed it and zipped it up, waved us on. I told that story in, in a, uh, a high school here in, in Birmingham, Alabama, and a hand shot up in the back of the room, and the little student, 14 years old now, uh, said he had a question, and I asked him to stand and repeat it. He did. His question, how much you take for that 45? I told him it's not negotiable, so there's no need to spend any more time on that. And he looked disappointed, but uh, uh, I still got it. It's not in the state of Alabama. It's in a safe deposit box in Tennessee someplace. I've never told any 
inner ones of my deepest friends before, but here it is out now. Uh, I challenge anybody to find it. <laughs> Where are you from originally? Oh, Bessemer, Alabama. Oh, okay. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah. Close by. All the way. <laughs> Just an old country boy, though. <laughs> so after the war, did you come back to Alabama? Oh, yes. Uh -huh. I came back and finished my education. Uh, I was working at the, uh, in the office at uh, Winona Ore Mine, and uh, I was going to night school at night at uh, UAB. And uh, with the GI Bill hanging out there, I took the opportunity of finishing my engineering degree. And then I went to work for General Motors, worked with them for 31 years and retired. Very good. This podcast is a charitable supported public service. To learn more about the veteran featured on this podcast, please go to portraitsofhonor.com. There you'll find more stories, portraits, and ways to be part of this act of honor. Every day, a few hundred World War II veterans pass away, and soon they'll all be gone. For the cost of a few cups of coffee each month, you can help us support the mission to give all these deserving veterans their portrait of honor and record and memorialize their stories forever. Please go to portraitsofhonor.com today to make your donation and show your support. Leave us a review and share this episode. By remembering the past, we can inspire a better future. Join us next time on Portraits of Honor.